this morning, I want to thank all of you guys for not being to church at Corinth. So greatly appreciate you guys. And thank you for being a blessing to me in the way that as I read the book of Corinthians, I see a very different relationship between Paul and the church. Uh, but this passage we read this morning, an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, I don't see too many of you ladies here with your hair covered. Um, oh, you do have long hair, but if your head is uncovered, you may as well shave your head. <laughs> okay, so we have an interesting passage to get through today. Uh, I'm going to need help, and so would you all pray with me as we come to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your great and precious word. You've revealed truth, truth which we would not know, which we would not live by had you not revealed it to us. And yet, Lord, your truth oftentimes is still something that runs very counter to what we have made ourselves, of self-centered, self-seeking people. And yet, Lord, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us and transformed our hearts and our minds. And so now we see that you are right and you are good. And so as we come to this passage, Lord, help us to see how we must change so that we will be more like what you have designed us to be, so that we will see you as good and precious, so that we will desire to be in your presence and enjoy our good and gracious God. So help us as we come to this passage this morning, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so I want to let you know that as we are looking at this passage this morning, not only was I struggling with this question of head coverings and what does it mean that we do these things because of the angels, uh, many of you who have been here for several weeks, you'll know that uh, there's been a consistent pattern throughout the book of Corinthians. And so um, you should have received a handout this morning. Uh, it should be familiar to you, actually. Um, I'm learning along with you. This is the same handout you guys got four weeks ago which I then edited and gave to you again, and which I've now edited again. <laughs> um, uh, because, so as we look at chapter 11, what do we have here? And there's been this consistent pattern where Paul addresses a question raised by the Corinthian church. And what he then does is he tells them, if you're asking this question, you're really going in the wrong direction. And so he then we'll show them a greater principle and apply that principle to their situation upon which he comes to show them that the question they asked has been the wrong question. And so uh, give you just an everyday example of that. Um, a child, there's cookies on the ledge, mom wants to feed the child dinner. And so the child turns to his friend and says, those cookies, I really want one. Should I steal one when mom is not looking? Or should I just openly defy her and take them? 
And if the friend is a godly person, that friend would then turn to the child and say, you're asking the wrong question. And that's what the Corinthians were doing over and over and over. Um, and we've been going through the book of Corinthians. We've been seeing this pattern. The last time we saw this, we saw the Corinthians asking this question about food, sacrifice to idols. And you'll recall that Paul then questioned their very relationship with Jesus Christ and said, don't you know what Christian liberty is about? You are asking this question in a way to put yourself above your brother, to raise yourself above him, and to put him down and raise yourself up. But Christian liberty is not meant to function in the way of this world where we exalt ourselves, which is the natural human state. What do we do with the liberty and the authority that we're given? We do those things. But Christian liberty is for building up the body, for blessing your brother and sister. And so um, there's been that pattern. And then we come to chapter 11, and you see here now, there's a contrast that's set up between verses 1 through 16 and 17 through 34. And it's in this thing where Paul says, I commend you in this, but I don't commend you in that. And so I was thinking, have we come to a new section? Especially because, as Elder Gordon brought us through the passage last week, there is a kind of culmination in these questions that the Corinthians have been asking and Paul has been addressing. Because you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, Paul says, So, in addressing this question of food sacrifice to idols, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And as the Westminster Confession tells us, what is the chief end of humanity? The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so there's been a cycle of questions that Paul has been addressing, and he's been leading the Corinthians, in a sense, up to this summit, and we've come to the highest and greatest principle to glorify God. But then if you skip chapter 11 and go to chapter 12, and you look at verses 12, I mean, chapters 12 through 14, you'll see he's come back to that pattern again because he's going to address the question of spiritual gifts and how spiritual gifts are used in the church. And so it seems like he's coming back to it. So what are we doing here in chapter 11? Is this kind of an interruption where there's this commendation and there's just this practice he wants to address? But I would say it functions within that narrative. And the conclusion I ended up coming to was that this is an explanation. This is how we live out that great principle that Paul has given about doing all to the glory of God. And so how do we glorify God in how we pray and how we prophesy? How do we glorify God in how we come together in communion? And these are some of the great practices of the church. And so what is chapter 11 teaching us about how we honor and glorify God in our lives? And I want to come at this in a little different way than just going straight through, because we, we need to, at some point, understand what is this all about in terms of the head coverings. But the primary issue here, if we understand that this is an explanation of how we honor and glorify God, it's not, just, it's not primarily dealing with head coverings. Head coverings, in a sense, are the particular practice 
that God or that Paul is explaining to us how it is that we would honor and glorify God. And so what we can do is we can look at what it is that Paul is teaching us in terms of the principle of doing all to the glory of God. And then we can ask whether head coverings would still be the way through which we as a church would honor God and then come to a conclusion. So hope that makes sense. But it is a passage that's a little harder to understand. And, and I think it would help this morning to think about why it is that sometimes the Bible is hard to understand. Sometimes the Bible is hard to understand because Scripture runs deep. There is so great a wealth of knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. So it takes digging and understanding and wisdom to arrive at the truth of Scripture. And also, there's a matter of our hearts. And so the truth of God is not only deep, it runs counter to who we are. Because at the point of time in the fall, our lives went away from that central, highest purpose of honor, honoring and glorifying God to honoring and glorifying ourselves. And so Scripture's truth can be difficult because it is deep and it runs counter to who we are. But another difficulty we have is that Scripture is given within a particular context, within a particular time and culture. And that time and that culture is not ours. We're 2,000 years separated, and we live in a culture that has, in many ways, changed from the culture and the time of the Bible. And we can see this particularly because when we look at this passage about head coverings, we have to wonder, why head coverings? What's the big deal about head coverings? And there's a way in which when this message comes to us, there's just a lack of accessibility. There's a lack of understanding that we would have if we were living in that time and culture. So how can we get into the passage? And it's actually not too hard. Because what we can do is we can first look at what is the clear teaching of this passage. What is the general overall message that chapter 11 is striving to convey to us? Well, we see that this passage has very much to do with certain relationships. In particular, the relationship between God and Christ and husbands and wives. Look at verse 3. Uh, so after the commendation that Paul gives in verse 2, in verse 3 he says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so it's established a certain relationship between these four parties, God the Father, Christ, God the Son, the husband, and the wife. And so the context we're dealing with is this context of relationships and relationships between these four persons. We can also see that these relationships have nothing to do to the value of the persons involved or their status. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? There's, in, in terms of saying that the head of Christ is God, the head of the husband is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, it's not saying the father is greatest. 
and then is the son, and then is the husband, and at the very bottom is the wife. That is not what we're saying. How, how do we know that? Well, do you want to make the case that the father is not equal to the son? That Jesus Christ, the son, is lesser than the father? If you were to say so, you would be committing a heresy of some kind. Perhaps the Arian heresy, uh, perhaps some other one. But those things are simply not true. Jesus is true God. And so in terms of what we call ontology or the nature of being, Jesus is equal to the Father. But in the way in which they come and they do this work of salvation to bring us into a relationship back into the relationship with God, Jesus Christ submits to the Father. He follow, follows the Father's plan of redemption for us. And so, in establishing God the Father as the head of Christ, there is not an ontological difference. There's not a difference in the value or the worth of the person. But there is established a particular relationship in this case it's a functional relationship in order to accomplish something and what is it accomplishing it's accomplishing the glory of god and so you can see how um, now as we're coming to this passage we see how chapter 11 is helping us understand how do we live out that principle how do we live out the principle that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do that we do all to the glory of god this is a concrete example. Husbands, wives, here we learn from the relationship between God the Father and God the Son how we too can honor God. And we can see that there's a correlation in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son should in some way reflect the relationship between Christ and the husband and the husband and the wife. And so, this does bring up something that very much runs right into the thing of, is this a truth we want to receive? Because this deals with the area of authority and submission. And oh, do we love that concept of submission. And so another thing we can see here is that the, one of the ways that we glorify God is not in appealing to our culture's sensitivities. There is a sense in which if we live faithfully as a church, the world will not look at us and say, I want that. Because, just put it this way, how many women out there do you know who are not Christians who would say, I look at the Christian church and I see that commandment where wives are to submit to their husbands, and even though I'm not a Christian, I just really like that. I'd love to submit to my husband. So our honoring and glorifying God does not come particularly through appealing to the sensibilities of our culture. But it does glorify God by testifying to who he is and showing the world the way in which God is different from them and presenting this to them an accurate clear compelling picture 
of who God is. And so one of the things in this passage is we think about how does authority work in this world? There's a very natural way. We just talked about it. What is the natural response when someone says, submit to me? And we don't like this. And it's very reasonable not to like it because how does this usually work in our world? The person with power and authority invariably uses that power and authority to exalt themselves, to put themselves over us, me over you. You listen to me. You follow me. You do what I wish. But there's a transformative way that God shows us about power and authority. And this is something that people in power and authority themselves would not like to hear. And so when we think about the religions of the world and how they appeal to leaders and how leaders might use them, Christianity has a very subversive effect. Because how is it that, as we see in this case, how is it that the father uses the authority that he has over the son? He presents the son, the work of redemption. And we see the purpose of that in the book of Philippians. And you can see another echo of it in Revelations chapter 4 and 5. In giving Christ the work of redemption, the end purpose of it in Philippians 2 is that the Son would be exalted and lifted up. And so those of you who are fathers perhaps can feel an echo of this. Don't you take joy when your children accomplish something wonderful and you can see their joy in what they've accomplished and delight in the glory that they receive. And so the father uses his authority. And in Revelations chapter 4 and 5, you'll, you'll see that there's a song that's sung. And then there's a greater song that comes in Revelation 5 because the Lamb of God is able to open the scroll and put into effect the work of redemption. How has Christ used the authority that he has over us? And you'll remember, like, you know, Christ has a very interesting definition of friendship, right? <clears throat> you know, I... If you're my friend, how, how would we have that friendship going on between us? Would I say to you, you are my friends, obey my commands. But that's what Christ says to his friends. But we see the purpose for which Christ exercised that authority. He offers himself and gives himself as the price of redemption so that his people can be saved. Authority is the authority to be a blessing, to exercise sacrificial love, to use that authority for the benefit, not the exploitation of those over whom you've been given authority. And so is that a way in which the world can see us as a church and say, look at the husbands and the wives of God's church and we see how those husbands don't exploit, don't domineer, don't abuse their wives, but rather raise them up before God. And so how does God's church glorify him by the husband's exercise of authority over the home, by the husband's submission to Christ? Actually, uh, if you've known my wife, Irene, she's 
a strong character. Uh, she's not someone who, uh, whose will easily bends to another. And so when I was courting her, um, that idea of submitting to a husband was not rubbing her in a particularly pleasing way until she thought, okay, if he submits to Christ, I think I could submit to him. <laughs> and we have to have this different picture, right, of authority and submission. Oh, this passage is certainly about authority and submission, but the way that authority and submission glorifies God in the church. One more thing we can see that is very clear here is that we glorify God not through blind obedience to tradition. Here we see in uh, verse 2, one of the first things that Paul says that's good about the Corinthian church, right? And because so far it's just about you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, there's divisions, one person's following this teaching, you guys have it all wrong. But now, finally, a commendation. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But, okay, so we finally have something good, and it's immediately followed by an adversative, a but, a disclaimer. But you need to understand what you're doing. We glorify God not through blind obedience, but understanding and embrace of God's truth. And this is where I would say there's a good challenge to us as a church. Uh, the Western church, a lot of traditions in the Western church, and particularly in the Chinese culture, maybe you're not Chinese, but uh, there's a way in which Chinese culture includes some of the values that are biblical values, right? I mean, within Asian culture, there is kind of a respect for the elderly, for those who are older, right? And there's a strong uh, bond of family. And those things comport with, they, they are consistent with Christianity. But if we are merely holding on to those things because they are the way that we have always done things, or you can think about the politics of today, church is trying to maintain a certain way of life. If we're only doing those things because of tradition and we do not understand the purpose behind them, is God really glorified? And when we do not understand them, will we live them out in the right way? Or we will hold on to them in the way that we ought. And the implication here in the way that Paul addresses the question is, you're holding on to these traditions, but some people are departing from them. They're not doing them anymore. And in what way are they perhaps not doing them anymore? And so now we can come to the idea of head coverings and some of the difficult teachings in this passage. Whatever else the head coverings were for, the important thing about them for our passage is that, as Paul says, they are a sign of authority over the woman. And so the person who wore the head covering was showing or testifying to the fact that she embraced that relationship with her husband. But the person who was discarding that, and the implication in terms of how Paul addresses this passage is that some were indeed doing so, were showing that they 
rejected that kind of relationship. And so how do we see head coverings today? Um, we see them oftentimes as accessories. Some of you wear some very interesting ones, uh, some ones that I think are kind of either very pretty or cute. Um, if you're a man, perhaps a respectful thing to do when you come into the church is to take off a head covering. But regardless, we don't see head coverings as really conveying much of a message other than this is just simply how you're presenting yourself. And so in terms of how head coverings function in our culture and how head coverings function in their culture, you see now that gap, right? Why is it that we have a difficulty in understanding that that the Corinthians didn't? It's because there was a connotation to it. Uh, it's hard to think of something that has that particular connotation in our culture. You might think of uh, a wedding ring or an engagement ring. Like if uh, you've just gotten engaged and your uh, fiance's bought you this really nice engagement ring. And suppose the woman who receives that engagement ring says, I'm not going to wear that. That would, that would have a certain kind of connotation, right? And so you can see that with respect to this issue of head coverings, there was a connotation. There was a way in which it affected the Corinthians' testimony and witness to the kind of relationship that God desired to proclaim through his church. And so in terms of why does the church not use these head coverings today, uh, the simplest answer here is simply that it does not convey the same message that it did in Paul's time and in Paul's culture. And so in terms of what we communicate through not wearing the head coverings, we do not communicate the same thing. And so in this respect, um, we don't wear the head coverings or there's not the requirement for head coverings because simply that message isn't conveyed. Likewise, uh, another difficult part of this passage is, why do we do things because of the angels? Now, the word there, angels, also, some of you may see that footnote um, if you have your ESV Bible. Um, does it matter? And in one sense, it would be nice. Are we testifying to these things to the angels, or are we testifying to them to the people around us who would observe and see what we do? In either case, we know that what the function of doing this is, is that the church is to provide a good and consistent testimony, whether to the angels, which we know are very engaged in and interested in what is God doing with this world? How is his righteousness and his glory going to be displayed by how he works with fallen humanity in this work of redemption? So the Bible tells us the angels are very much engaged in observing how God works in this world. Likewise, it could mean that those who are around the church, who would convey the message of what the church is doing and see what the church is doing, would see there is this practice within the church that testifies to the right kind of relationships that God has established. But either way, what the church is to be concerned about is, do we have that testimony? Are we helping people see what God has designed for us? And so 
in the end, does it really matter that much that we understand exactly what head coverings conveyed in their time and culture? Well, to the extent that we already actually have it in the passage where Paul tells us it was a sign of authority. Does it really matter this phrase about to the angels? Well, it has some bearing in terms of who we're testifying to, but we get the central message, right? The church is to testify to what God is doing. But perhaps the more difficult message is this. More than explaining what it means, the issue we have today is how do we embrace these truths of God, especially truths that run counter to our culture, that perhaps run counter to our own desires. We said that submission is not a popular word in our culture. And we do know that certainly men and the church and men in the church have abused that authority that God has given to husbands. Let's start with the fact that if there has been, which there has in the past, those who have not carried out God's testimony and witness well or have abused a position is not a reason to abandon a design that God has created. And so we ask a question, is it good or not that God has created us male and female? That he's revealed to us the purposes and the kind of relationship that a husband should have with his wife. And to help convey that, I want to do something that I don't usually do, which is I want to give a kind of lengthy account. So if you can kind of focus, it's a really interesting story. You can look it up yourself. Uh, there was a woman this week who published an article, uh, very widely spread. Uh, the writer's name was Emily Gould, and she was writing about her marriage to a fellow writer by the name of Keith Gesson. And what she was writing about was her struggle with marriage and her decision to get a divorce. And what I want us to see here is how the world tackles this question about family relationships and the calculus and the decision-making that goes into a relationship, which should be very interested uh, interesting to anyone in a relationship or thinking about one. So she writes this, and, and it's a very well-written article. I, it's worth some time to read it. It's pretty long, but I'll just read you some of the excerpts. In the summer of 2022, I lost my mind. At first, it seemed I was simply overwhelmed because life had become very difficult and I needed to, had every right to, blow off some steam. Our family was losing its apartment and had, had to find another one fast in a rental market gone so wild that people were offering over the asking price on rent. My husband Keith was preparing to publish a book, Raising Rafi, about our son, a book he'd written with my support and permission, but that, as publication loomed, I began to have mixed feelings about. To cope with the stress, I asked my psychiatrist to increase the dosage of the antidepressant I'd been on for years. Sometime around then, I started talking too fast and drinking a lot. When well-meaning friends tried to point out what was going on, I screamed at them and pointed out everything that was wrong in their lives. And most crucially, I became convinced that my marriage was over and had been over for years. 
I built a case against my husband in my mind. This book of his was simply the culmination of a pattern. He had always put his career before mine. While I had tended to our children during the pandemic, he had written a book about parenting. I tried to balance writing my own novel with drop-offs, pickups, sick days, and planning meals and shopping and cooking, most of which had always been my primary responsibility since I was a freelancer and Keith had a full-time job teaching journalism. We were incompatible in every way except that we could talk to each other as we could to no one else, but that seemed beside the point. More relevant, I spent money like it was water, never budgeting, leaving Keith to make sure we made rent every month. Every few months, we'd have a fight about this, and I'd vow to change. Some system would be put in place, but it never stuck. We were headed for disaster, and finally it came. And it was at this point she actually uh, published on a blog and asked uh, her, her readers to support her. She, she wrote this, divorce turns out to be very expensive and I don't have access to very much money now. Um, and asking for the contributions to the cause of me escaping my marriage with my custody and sanity intact. She wrote that she was taking an infinite hiatus from hetero marriage and monogamy. They are a trap for women, full stop. Sometimes a trap can be cozy. Mine was until it wasn't. And it was at this point she uh, checked herself into a psychiatric ward and started reading books, trying to get a handle on what was going on and how she should think about this in her life. Uh, she read Darkness Visible, The Bell Jar, and Unquiet Mind, Postcards from the Edge. I don't know if any of you are familiar with any of those books. I haven't read any of them. Um, but the one that really started to connect with her were books about divorce. And so the first book uh, that connected with her on this was Rachel Cusk's Aftermath, which she says has become the go-to literary divorce Bible since its 2012 publication. In it, Cusk describes the way her life shattered and recomposed after the dissolution of her marriage when her daughters were still very young. She makes the case for the untenability of her relationship by explaining. And so in a sense, now what she's doing here is uh, this other author, Cusk, is, is saying this is the case for every one of us. Um, the untenability of her relationship by explaining that men and women are fundamentally unequal. She posits that men and women who marry and have children are perpetually fighting separate battles lost to each other. The baby can seem like something her husband has given her as a substitute for himself, a kind of transitional object like a doll for her to hold so that he can return to the world. And he does. He leaves her returning to work, setting sail for Troy. He is free. For in the baby, the romance of man and woman has been concluded. Each can now do without the others. Um, Emily Gold also read some other books. She received an early copy of Sarah Manguso's Liars, marketed as a searing novel about being a wife, a mother, and an artist, and how marriage tears out of us all. Um, in the opening of the book, it reads, Then I married a man, as women do. My life became archetypal, a drag show of nuclear familyhood. I got enmeshed in a story that had already been told 10 billion times. And Gould writes about that. I felt perversely reassured that I was merely adding another 
story to the 10 billion. It made it seem like it was less my fault. Okay, when you, do you see that is how the world, when it thinks about this relationship, this husband-wife relationship, when you enter a marriage, what is it that I gain through this? What is it that I sacrifice or give up to this? And is it something that will keep me from realizing my dreams and my hopes? And so uh, this was the struggle that Gould was going through and thinking through in terms of what's going on with my marriage. And in that sense, is my marriage already over? And I've already made so many sacrifices in my career. And we can see that kind of negotiation, don't we? I mean, actually, even as Christians, don't we do it? You know, I took the kids to the dentist last time. You take them to see Elder this time. Or, you know, I cooked dinner this time. You wash the dishes. Uh, there's always that kind of negotiation. And can we work this out? Can we get along? Can each of us get something that we desire out of this marriage? And so um, at that point, um, Emily Gould and Keith Gesson entered uh, divorce counseling to figure out how this marriage was going to dissolve. Um, and so she writes this about that. We decided to enter divorce mediation at the beginning of December. On 6th Avenue, heading to the therapist's office, we passed the hospital where I'd once been rushed for an emergency fetal EKG when I was pregnant with our first son. His heart had turned out to be fine. But as we passed that spot, I sensed correctly that we were both thinking of that moment, of a time when we had felt so connected in our panic and desperate hope and now the invisible cord that had bound us had been, if not severed, shredded, and torn. For a moment on the sidewalk there, we allowed ourselves to hold hands, remembering. The therapist was a small older woman with a short, curly, reddish hair. She seemed wise like she'd seen it all and seen worse. I was the one who talked the most in that session, blaming Keith for making me go crazy, even though I knew this wasn't technically true or possible. I had gone crazy from a combination of sky-high stress and a too-high SSRI prescription and a latent crazy that had been in me, part of me, since long before Keith married me, since I was born. Still, I blamed his job, his book, his ambition, and workaholism, which always surpassed my own efforts. I cried throughout the session. I think we both did. I confessed that I was not the primary wrong person in these negotiations. And to be fair, I have to talk about why. Sometime post-last fight and pre-hospitalization, I had managed to cheat on my husband. I had been so sure we were basically already divorced that I justified the act to myself. I couldn't have done it any other way. I had thought I might panic at the last minute or even throw up or faint, but I had gone through it thanks to the delusional state I was in. There aren't many more details anyone needs to know. It was just one time, and it was like a drug I used to keep myself from feeling sad about what was really happening. Anyway, there's a yoga retreat center I'll never be able to go to again in my life. And then she writes this. At the end of the session, we decided to continue with the therapist, but in couples therapy instead of divorce mediation. It was a service she also provided, and as a bonus, it was $100 cheaper per session. She didn't say why she had made 
recommendation, but maybe it was because our palpable shared grief that convinced her that our marriage was salvageable. Or maybe it was that despite everything I had told her in that session, she could see that even in my profound sadness and anger, I looked toward Keith to complete my sentences when I was searching for the right word and that he did the same thing with me. As broken as we were, we were still pieces of one once whole thing. You see what's happening here? And so there is this tension that everyone is living in. And tension between living according to the pattern of God's revelation of what he has designed and living according to these selfish, sinful desires that we had fallen into. And these are pulling her and her husband apart. But on the other hand, she, even though she's not a Christian, she's sensing some of the reality of what God has created in husband and wife. They are one flesh. There is a way that they share a life in a way that there is no equal in any other kind of relationship that you can have. And in that kind of relationship, there must be grace, forgiveness, and sacrifice. And as we live in those, we reflect the design that God has created. And as we learn to submit to it, we find our joy in our fulfillment, in our blessing, in living according to the design for which we were made. Um, there's a lot more in her article, but I, I do appreciate her writing. She's a good writer, and, and there's a level of self-awareness there. Because as we go through the article, one of the things you can see is she is aware in many ways that the problem is not her husband, but it's herself. And she also recognizes some of the things we know must be in a marriage in respect to that grace and that forgiveness because she makes a list in terms of in order to preserve good luck ACFers uh, <laughs> they're going down to uh, inform our Chinese congregation of the mission trip but in terms of the marriage and the grace and the forgiveness that was needed she says we need these kind of things and she gives a list that is completely unbalanced and actually very much condemning of her. So she, listen to how she begins it. My husband would have to forgive me for cheating and wasting our money. I would have to forgive him for treading on my literary ter territory, our family's life, my own life. My husband would have to forgive me for having a mental breakdown, leaving him to take care of our family on his own for a month, costing us thousands of uninsured dollars in hospital bills. I would have to forgive him for taking for granted for years that I would be available on a sick day or to do an early pickup or to watch the baby while he wrote about our elder son. I would have to forgive him for taking for granted that there would always be dinner on the table without his having to think about how it got there. He would have to forgive me for never taking out the recycling and never learning how to drive so that I could move our car during alternate side parking. I would have to forgive him for usurping the time and energy and brain space with which I might have written a better book than his. Could the therapist help us overcome what I knew to be true, that we'd gone into marriage already aware that we were destined for constant conflict 
just because of who we are. Well, there's a marriage that might make it, right? Uh, because there's an awareness of the difficulties that are there. But you can see that in her paradigm, it's still a negotiation. And perhaps if each side can get what they want, that marriage would be preserved. Submission is not a word we like. But can we as a church model Christian submission in which when the world says, I don't like that concept of submission, but when I look at the marriages at PCC, I wish my marriage was a little bit more like that. I wish my husband loved me in the way that that woman's husband loves her. I wish my wife received the sacrifices that I made for her in the same way that his wife receives her sacrifices. And so what Paul was urging the Corinthians to do, a very disobedient church, and they didn't get it, and they didn't do it. We know that from the later writings. But what can we do? Can we live and testify to God's goodness, not by accommodating ourselves to the values of this culture, but by living gloriously in the purpose and design that God has given us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your design. It is something that's very hard for us to do, for husbands not to use authority to abuse and exploit, but to cherish, to exalt, to help our wives realize the dreams and desires they have. Wives, for our wives, Lord, would you help them see and find their fulfillment in what you've given them in marriage, in the blessing of a man and woman united in spirit and purpose. And Lord, we pray that as we do so, you would testify to the world that is watching that there is goodness and grace in your design. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So bless this week to... Oh! So Kelvin is sick and not here. And so we're not going to have his testimony. Which is good because I went way over. <laughs> so we're just going to conclude. <laughs> As the worship team is coming up, um, I just want to remind us that the White Harvest today will be a, a workshop about family. So in a sense, the sermon is like a intro to the workshops that we'll be having afterwards about family, husband and wives, genders, and how to glorify God in these things. So let us now rise in praise of the Lord. I will end our service with a reading from Psalm 146. Praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, O oh my soul. I will praise Yahweh 
as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yahweh.
So that was totally God in terms of how uh, the scripture passages have just matched up with how we're going into these uh, sessions on family relationships. That's totally God, folks. Let's close with these words. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Amen. Go in peace. Um, hang